Hello everyone and welcome to my digital talk. Today the topic is the big reset and India's role and I have a very distinguished guest with me, Samir Saran. Samir Saran is the president of Observer Research Foundation, one of Asia's most influential think tanks. He curates the Raisina Dialogue, India's annual flagship platform on geopolitics and geoeconomics, and chairs India's annual conference on cybersecurity and internet governance. Samir Saran is also a commissioner of the Global Commission on the Stability of Cyberspace, member of the South Asia's advisory board of the World Economic Forum, and a part of its Global Future Council on Cybersecurity. Welcome, Samir, and thank you for joining me for the next 60 minutes. We have a very challenging task, and that is to cover the global power competition, the big reset, and the current geopolitical and geoeconomic constellations. But first and foremost, we are still in the middle of a COVID-19 outbreak. And I would like to ask you the question, how is India actually coping currently with the COVID-19 pandemic? And what are the estimations for India's post-COVID-19 uh, economic recovery uh, amid fears of Great Depression uh, worldwide. No, thank you for having me, Belina. I have been following your work and that of your institute. I was uh, lucky enough to visit your institute a few years ago, and uh, I have been a big fan and admirer of the work you do. Uh, we, of course, have also hosted some of you at the Ricina Dialogue, and uh, I hope that in the digital world, our um, partnership will get only stronger. So uh, thank you very much for having me. India and the pandemic. I think it's still early days. We have done rather well in terms of slowing down the speed of the spread. The, the period that the infection is taking to double has been slowing down. We have to be careful as we begin to open up the cities and economy again. And I think we are entering a, entering a critical month. Uh, the next 30 days are going to be extremely crucial and um, perhaps may decide the India story as far as the pandemic is concerned. But for a country which has um, very meager resources, we are a country with per capita income of under $2,000 um, and we have a health system that is overstretched. For a country uh, like India, uh, we have done very well. Uh, I think uh, the very difficult decision to lock down very early uh, has allowed us the space and time to prepare for what promises to be at least a 12 to 18 month um, struggle uh, to uh, respond to the health challenge, but also to respond to the collateral damage caused by this challenge, which is the economy, which is society, which is uh, the resurfacing of tribal instincts, which is uh, the despondency around globalization, which is uh, distrust amongst many actors, which is the failure of multilateralism. So there's a basket of challenges that we need to respond to, even as we uh, focus on the core uh, health proposition. The Indian economy is hurt. Uh, we have seen 30 days of literally no activity. Uh, I think somewhere in the end of March to now, say, the middle of May. So it will be a good 45 days of uh, a very, very, very strict uh, economic lockdown. Uh, and clearly, uh, we would have sent back millions of people into poverty at the end of the struggle. Uh, we have been lifting close to 25 to 30 million people out of poverty each year. We are going to suffer uh, some setbacks. Uh, we took a decision that protecting life was more important than protecting uh, uh, pure economics. Uh, I hope that in the coming months, we are able to begin to pay attention to the economic dimension as well, because I think uh, if we don't have a robust economy or at least an economy with some promise, uh, we would have lost to the pandemic in any case. Uh, we will have to find a way of coexisting with the pandemic over the next 12 to 18 months, protect our people, and of course, uh, nurture the economic outcomes and outputs as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we also witnessed in the last two and a half months that the COVID-19 outbreak was basically the first global challenge uh, that, um, well, took place without uh, a serious uh, global US leadership. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. um, and even the European Union as an institution uh, representing uh, the key European powers has struggled to uh, distribute resources between its member states at the initial phase of uh, mm -hmm. the outbreak. Uh, and now many of these member states are also recognizing a certain reliance on China. Uh, mm -hmm. result of expediency and naivety, as you called it, and even our top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, uh, just recently uh, made the same, the same statement about uh, the European Union being uh, sort of naive about uh, the rising power China. So this weakened transatlantic core that is certainly uh, here, has uh, basically uh, revealed uh, its uh, weaknesses, its weak spots, uh, but mostly affecting the international liberal order, is likely to slip further in relevance um, in the post-COVID-19 uh, world. So I would like to ask you to describe your view on this so-called big reset. How do you see it? Are we going to face a long-lasting systemic rivalry between the current sole global power that is still the United States and a rising second center of power that is China. Um, how will this fast changing and, and, and basically rapidly evolving balance of power equations uh, between China on the one side and still a US-led Western hemisphere look like in your eyes? You know, I. I, I, I want to go in order and respond to your, um, I think, three parts. The big, larger global system, the G2, which is American-Chinese rivalry, and uh, what does Pax Seneca or the arrival of China really mean for all of us? But uh, I don't see a Western Hemisphere anymore, and, and I'm going to be a little provocative. I see only two spheres. I see a receding American sphere, and I see an increasing Chinese sphere. I don't see the Western Hemisphere. I think the... Um, uh, I, the writ of Beijing pretty much now runs into Brussels. I think you can see the supercontinent pretty much is dominated by uh, uh, the Belt and Road and Chinese politics and economic uh, uh, decisions. And uh, you see, again, uh, Brussels turning away from American influence. So in Brussels itself, you see the rise of China and the, rec and the recession of America. And I think what we are really seeing now is an uh, is a, is a entanglement between these two big actors um, whose outcome is still unknown. Uh, I think Europe uh, is no longer an actor, as this crisis tells us, it is being acted upon. Uh, it, this is an inflection point for uh, three important uh, 20th century um, actors. The first, of course, is America. I think in 2009, we saw the end of Pax Americana. Uh, the unipolar moment disappeared in 2008-2009 with that last financial crisis. It started with the Iraq war, but perhaps by the time we reached the financial crisis, uh, it was well and truly over. America was unable to, by itself, uh, solve the biggest challenge uh, the humankind had faced, and it required to create a G20 and devolve power to a much wider set of actors. The rise of multipolarity can be traced back to, the, uh, uh, to that particular period. Will 2020 and the pandemic be the the end of uh, uh, America as the leading superpower of the world? And will it now have to formally cede space and allow China to dominate parts of the global system that were earlier its prerogative? I think that's the big question. So it's an inflection point for America. Can it bounce back? Can it become internationalist again? Can it get over its own domestic politics? Can it look beyond its nose? And can it become a, a proactive and a, 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 and a uh, a beneficial actor in the global system. The second, of course, is the uh, European Union. Uh, that was a, a second big um, uh, uh, actor uh, in the later part of the 20th century, early parts of the 21st century. Uh, it struggled in the recent years in terms of um, its expansion and the politics that the expansion brought with it. And it was unable to reconcile the differences not only between the East and West of the European Union, but also between the North and South. And it was anyways under certain uh, pressures. Uh, the pandemic may pretty much signal the end of a cohesive European Union unless it takes some dramatic decisions now. And uh, uh, what you see happening in terms of Germany and the ECB or what you saw earlier happening in Poland versus the, uh, versus the bureaucrats in Brussels, you are seeing 
a very loud but a very vicious um, political landscape uh, emerge. And I think European Union, again, it's an inflection point. Either you will see the 17 plus one become the most dominant grouping or EU will come back supercharged with a determination to be uh, a more, more political an actor than it has ever been. Because I think as a norms, the, the, the idea that you would be a norm empire of norms or a, a superpower of norms is behind us. This is a world of hard power. You need money on the table. You need political muscle alongside it. And then you will be able to navigate uh, these turbulent times. European Union has a uh, call to make. The third, of course, is uh, Russia. And I think uh, it itself is facing a very important decision point now. Uh, at, at one level, the Russians were brutal in, in terms of dealing with uh, the movement of Chinese uh, uh, within and from uh, Moscow and Beijing. In terms of the pandemic, they were one of the earliest of the blocks. They banned travel, they banned movement, they closed their borders. And uh, they did everything that Russia can do uh, quite swiftly, quite uh, uh, efficiently. Uh, but on the other hand, they see in this moment, and this is their intrinsic uh, weakness that they need to try and curb, they see in this moment something that they had dreamt of, the demise of the Western liberal order. They see the pandemic can actually destroy the Western liberal order. They see China has that ability to do that, and there will be a temptation in Moscow to go along with the Chinese propositions, to side with China, to defend it in multilateral organizations, to take its uh, views at the WHO and the UN bodies. So there will be a temptation in Moscow to help the Chinese drive the final nail in the coffin of the Western liberal order. But I keep telling my friends in Moscow that this is to your detriment. Once China has driven the nail in the coffin, you are next. Either you will be a satellite of the, of, of the Chinese hegemony or you will be a bystander watching China redesign the world and the political maps according to its own imaginations. Uh, so these are the three actors who are at a very interesting um, and a crucial juncture. All three of them powerhouses of the 20th century, all three of them having to rethink their own identity in the 21st century. And the single uh, agent that has created this turmoil is China. The Chinese emergence, the Chinese political expansiveness, the Chinese economic design, the Chinese technology and political system have put these three, uh, put the spotlight on these three sovereign union, unions or a super sovereign union, European Union being the super sovereign union. And I think um, Pax Seneca to me is a story of these three actors, the future of Europe, the future of Russia and the future of the United States of America. China is like the house in a Las Vegas casino. No matter who wages and who places the bet, the house always wins. So China is in that sweet spot that it is likely to be uh, in a position where outcomes will be favorable to it, irrespective of what decisions anyone makes. But these three will be tested uh, severely in the coming days. Mm -hmm. uh, great. Uh, and you've mentioned Pax Sinica. This is also the title of one of your books. Uh, so would you elaborate a little bit more for our listeners and watchers? Uh, what exactly do you understand? Uh, how do you actually see this uh, Paxinica phenomenon? And you actually point to two main clouds that China has. On the one side, um, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, originally called OBOR, uh, One Belt, One Road, uh, and then renamed to Belt and Road. On the other side, technological advantages amid the fourth industrial revolution. We are right now in the middle of a uh, fourth industrial revolution. And we know very well how the last two industrial revolutions were actually at the core of Pax Britannica and later on Pax Americana. So basically, the state, the country, the actor that manages to ride the wave of the Industrial Revolution and is first in this competition. And we saw this very clearly in the 70s in the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union during the last Industrial Revolution. So how do you see that China will actually, um, you know, emerge and will it actually emerge as the winner of this fourth industrial revolution? And how exactly do you see this PRI uh, evolving? We are already observing certain certain conflict lines, certain tensions. Uh, let me just uh, name uh, the case of Africa, African countries uh, who were sensitized um, uh, due to uh, indebtedness 
caused by BRI due to increasing uh, dependence uh, on China, but also even South Asia. This is probably the best uh, the best um, um, case uh, to put on the table uh, right now in our talk, uh, as India is certainly observing already a kind of a circlement of countries, neighbors, direct neighbors being part of the BRI and the best example for it is of course Pakistan with the economic corridor between China, so unprecedented alliance uh, so to say in the last decade. So let's elaborate on these issues. No, you know, uh, it, for me the, the, the Chinese um, emergence, uh, the China's world, Pax Hinecker, comprises of a number of layers. I think the first and most obvious and in-your-face uh, Chinese project is the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is now uh, on the table for a few years. So we have written about it, debated it, criticized it, supported it, invested in it, invested out of it. We have seen a whole cycle of political and economic decisions uh, having been made on that particular project. But I think at the core of that Belt and Road Initiative is a Chinese ambition which is huge, which I don't think any superpower in the past has been able to do. China is determined to reconnect the supercontinent that it believes was, was segregated based on past colonial experiences. As far as China is concerned, the large supercontinent comprising of Europe and Asia is its um, playground, is its normal, natural, organic uh, area of influence, area of trade, area of political activity. And as far as the Chinese are concerned, the Middle Kingdom is doing no wrong if it seeks to be part of all the politics and economics and trade and cultural activities that happen in this particular supercontinent. So I think that's the one big Chinese project where it is connecting, uh, integrating Brussels into Beijing's sphere of, of influence. Uh, and uh, we are all sideshows. They are not interested in a $3 trillion Indian economy, which is largely inward looking, or a small Nepalese economy, even smaller Bhutanese economy, or a dysfunctional Pakistan economy. They are not really, these are all um, roads through which they need to travel to get to Brussels. They are connecting a continent. We are the sideshows. We are sometimes dispensable if we are irritants, and we can be uh, co opted if we are favorable. So if you have a favorable country, you become part of the Belt and Road. If you are a uh, opposition, then you are removed from the equation. Uh, the Chinese saw no utility in the South Asian region. The South Asian subregion had no utility for China. It does not recognize South Asia. It is not going to deal with South Asia. It is going to deal with the individual components of the South Asian region. It will make deals with the, the Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans, Pakistanis and others and Maldives. And they will proceed and they will uh, uh, enter the court of the emperor, pay the tribute and become part of the larger Chinese world. And in many ways, the Belt and Road Initiative is Chinese ambition to tap into the $20 trillion EU market size. That is their main target. They are not looking at these small uh, opportunities uh, uh, along the way. They are looking at the heart of Europe. They want EU as their economic um, uh, uh, sphere of influence. And I think nothing is going to stop them from getting there. They have created multiple arrangements within Europe to undermine EU. They have created multiple partnerships in Europe to ensure that infrastructure is now pretty much a part of Europe's future. And they are going to change the politics of Europe and its economics in due course. How fast does it happen will depend on how strong Brussels decides to be at this particular moment of time. That's the first big project. The second big project, as you rightly mentioned, is that what is the Chinese offering? Every industrial revolution uh, has an actor emerge because they had the most compelling proposition to offer to the world. You know, uh, at the time of uh, the steam engine, there was a proposition. At the time of uh, the internet and, and telecommunications, there was a proposition. Now, in this time, there has to be a Chinese proposition as well. It's only through attractive propositions that uh, uh, actors are able to uh, build constituencies. I think the Chinese proposition on the table is quite attractive. They are willing to put money to build infrastructure in places where no one else is willing to do. So they are going to countries and regions where the, which have been failed and let down by the World Bank and international institutions and uh, rich countries because either they don't want to invest in coal plants or they don't want to invest in uh, carbon intensive infrastructure or they don't want to waste money in, in cities and, and, and uh, urban development. Chinese are giving money to those who need money. 
And I think that's a very compelling proposition. We can all criticize China, but unless you are able to put money alongside the Chinese and compete with them, the Chinese will always win because they put money on the table and then they put their ideology alongside it. When money flows from Beijing to any city, the Communist Party of China's ideology flows along with it. You want the world to buy your ideology and you want to sell it and you want them to buy it while paying you for buying it. I think that that is not going to work anymore. The Chinese proposition has money and ideology attached to it. The second, the Chinese are giving technologies that are very appealing. They are cheap. They allow everyone to participate in the fourth industrial revolution. They allow the state to control their citizens and, and keep a tight watch on what the citizens do. They allow authoritarian regimes to flourish. Everything that uh, the liberal order, so-called liberal order, is unable or unwilling or incapable of doing, the Chinese do it at a very low price point. The Chinese are willing to give state-controlled capitalism and an authoritarian surveillance-based regime to anyone who wants it. Now, guess what? 150 odd countries really like this proposition. They are willing to buy this kind of a Chinese offering. Guess what? Some of those also happen to be a part of Europe. So what I'm trying to say is that this is not a third world phenomenon. This is not an African or an Asian or an Indian reality. This is a proposition that is appealing to many, including those who, are, who have a per capita income of 10, 20, 30, 40,000 euros a year. So the second Chinese proposition is that create a framework in a time when the state wants to regain control, sovereignty is back, every country wants to exert it, Chinese are giving strong leaders tools to exert that sovereignty, to control their citizens, to control the economic trajectories, to control uh, the cultural and, and the social choices that people make. And this is the second Chinese offering. Chinese are coding the future by giving cheap technology, Chinese platforms, and lots of infrastructure and money uh, as a very, very attractive proposition. The third, and I think this is really, really important. China is building a security architecture very different to what either the, the British did in their heydays or what the Americans did. The British, of course, had colonies and they used the colonies to control uh, regions and, and continents. The Americans had mobile uh, presence through their aircraft carriers uh, stationed across the world and uh, exerting American influence. The Chinese have... Chinese use a very old uh, invention in a new uh, uh, cover called ports. Chinese build ports everywhere in the world, which serve as economic entry points for those countries, but also become their military presence in many of these regions. So while China claims it has only three to four military uh, 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 facilities around the world, in reality, it can retrofit over a dozen um, uh, of these facilities into its security uh, 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 instrumentality. And I think that's the second, that, that's the third offering. China has a very soft security arrangement, which is not in your face, but is quite in, insidious. Since it is not visibly present, it is, it is not something that creates great um, uh, 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 emotions against it, but it is, uh, it is always there. It is uh, uh, the, the proverbial Manchurian candidate uh, ready to rise when the emperor demands. So I think the, the security architecture China is building to preserve its political influence is also very uh, compelling. And finally, I think more recently, the Chinese have decided that uh, the wolf warrior is a good format for them to conduct international relations and diplomacy. And they are becoming very aggressive in trying to build a pro-China narrative. They are buying universities and colleges. They are buying uh, editorial spaces in the most prestigious newspapers, be it um, American or European or Australian or Asian, uh, their ambassadors write op-eds in India and write op-eds in Germany and write op-eds in, um, uh, rather, sorry, they write propaganda pieces, mm. camouflaged as op-eds in, in multiple geographies. And uh, they are aggressive on social media. They are uh, threatening in their, in their communications. They are absolutely determined to control the narrative. Now, these are in some sense, the sum and substance of, uh, of the Chinese proposition with one addition. They are beginning to control global institutions that were built and funded by America and the Europeans. They are beginning to control the WHOs and the, and the ICOAs and the, and the ITUs and all the international institutions that are important for the fourth industrial revolution, be it around human capital, be it around technology, be it around trade. They are with very limited deployment of resources, 
they command far greater control and influence than the major major donors do who they through marginal funding they had control that organization same is the case of itu same is the case of many other international institutions so i think put all of this put together narrative international institutions uh, a flexible security architecture a compelling finance and infrastructure offering and technology to control and uh, uh, benefit um, uh, the elites be it the political elites or the business elites is in some in substance the five layers of pax seneca mm -hmm. i'm sorry Maybe, i gave you a very long answer no that was very actually very very interesting and uh, comprehensive uh, way to put it um, maybe to add just one more uh, layers that you've addressed in the previous uh, question that is the land connectivity that is now also a kind of revival of uh, the ancient silk roads uh, the way we saw them mm -hmm. during the roman empire times and actually it should serve as an alternative to maritime blockades uh, in case such are taking place along the maritime routes so basically their actors they are involving uh, with are once again the dragon bears as i call it russia china but also central asian uh, countries countries in eastern europe that are basically weak spots uh, the the weak spot to entering uh, Brussels or the industrialized heart of europe so <laughs> Uh, some of them now on their path to association with uh, that means integration into the common market of Europe. So basically, the, we have also land connectivity as an alternative, not because it's more efficient, but because it's a good alternative in case that the ports network doesn't uh, doesn't Correct. work uh, well in the speed in the scope that they imagine. And you know, like. Uh, I, I was in uh, Vienna a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and um, one of my friends, um, uh, I think if I remember, we were having Mozart balls or something in a, in one of those famous cafes in in uh, in uh, Vienna, and he was excited, and he says, you know, thousands of Chinese can now come to Vienna by train. Uh, we will have so many of them coming in. I said, why are you excited about this? He says, oh, it's really great. Now we can travel from. You know, mainland to uh, to Vienna. I said, you know, in earlier times, this would be called an invasion. You are celebrating it now. Uh, in earlier times, uh, when you had such large numbers of people flow through land routes, uh, it was uh, something of great political significance. And I think the land routes here, uh, Velina, coming back to your point, are not necessarily the economic engines. The economic engines are still the maritime routes. That's where the big yeah. trade takes place. Uh, yeah. The land routes are of political significance. They are the integrative forces. When when you have thousands of people travel across train and road routes, it is the integration, the political integration that the Chinese are working on. It, the big money still flows through the maritime routes. Absolutely. And now speaking of uh, China, before we move uh, to other uh, relevant topics, uh, but uh, let me just use this opportunity to ask another question related to China. And that is a question related to the Communist Party. Now, mm -hmm. uh, if someone would have told me 30 years ago that we would face another competition with the Communist Party, determining the narrative, uh, you know, setting, the, and you've outlined it very well, exactly what is going on right now in terms of international institutions, in terms of bilateral and multilateral relations. And we have a country that is ruled by one party. Uh, let's not, uh, let's not, uh, you know, put it in another way because that's the reality. And we know from another period and from another w uh, competition, global powers competition, what it really meant. What I'm missing right now is still this ideological layer. The ideological mm -hmm. layer is, do you think that the Communist Party of China might win hearts and minds in other parts of the world? We are observing right now a rise of nationalism, a rise of authori authorit authoritative uh, modes, uh, rules of governance, but also rise of populism. And populism is not only right-wing one, but also left-wing one, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Marxism is still uh, an ideology that is not only being revived, but is being celebrated by certain generations. Let's take, for instance, the younger generations, even in countries like, uh, you know, in uh, countries uh, of, uh, of the transit like like the United States of America, but even here in Europe, we have now 
generations, uh, millennials uh, celebrating Marxism as something that's uh, cool. So how do you how do you see? Um, I'm still missing that part. I'm not convinced that China can really offer a comprehensive product aside from what you've actually outlined the five parts of Pax Sinica, uh, there is still this uh, missing ideological component. And uh, do you think that they will manage, uh, I don't know, through technological progress, like uh, adding some new apps, how cool it is to be a Marxist and having, uh, I mean, is it enough no, to have a t-shirt on Marx and, you know, while having your iPhone and, you know, using your laptop, but uh, still being, you know, a Marxist? whatsoever. I mean, I'm trying to not be sarcastic about it, but as someone coming from Eastern European country that have witnessed what really it, what this ideology really means, it's uh, hard to struggle, uh, you know, uh, with being uh, serious about, uh, you know, be, uh, about this ideology. But on the other side, things are really serious. I mean, it's, uh, uh, and you've described this in your, in, in your works. Uh, we have a, lifelong uh, leader of the Communist Party at the top of the power right now, Xi Jinping, uh, struggling for political survival due to COVID-19 and the post-COVID-19 repercussions. And it's going to be, once again, probably a very serious struggle within the Communist Party, struggle for leadership, not only survival. How do you think that this will actually, uh, you know, uh, take, take, take place within the country? So, so two uh, you know, I, yeah, I know I, you have asked me two questions. One is uh, the future of uh, communist China and uh, Xi Jinping uh, in terms of his domestic politics and uh, the appeal of China internationally. I think these are the two uh, yeah. elements yeah. that uh, you, you want me to respond to. Uh, I'm not so sure that post the pandemic, uh, the Chinese appeal in Africa and many parts of the world is going to diminish. I'm also not sure that Eastern Europe is going to decide, uh, Orban will decide that China is no longer a good actor to partner with. I think the Chinese influence is likely to grow in its old constituencies. In fact, it is going to prove to them that the Chinese model worked, that the liberal democracies have failed to respond to a global crisis. My system works. The emperor is going to tell his friends that if you were to have adopted my way of managing things, then uh, yes, we were welding people into their homes, we were shutting down cities dramatically, we hit the numbers of death and infections, but we controlled it. We are back on our feet, we are growing again, we are the factory of the world, while the rest of the world struggles to get their life back to normal. So I think the Chinese appeal is going to survive because the anger is going to last as long as the pandemic does. Thereafter, everyone who requires economic opportunity will turn to the Chinese. And that's where the Chinese second wave of the growth of Chinese influence is likely to begin. And that is my, I don't hope for it. I fear it. I fear the Chinese are going to emerge stronger post the pandemic for three reasons. A, they will have proven to many who want to believe uh, the Chinese way that we are more efficient and we are more in control. We are able to respond to challenges much better than the liberal democracies and, and chaotic plural systems are able to. B, that we are back on our feet, we have surpluses, we have money, we can invest in your country, you need help, partner with us. And C, the Chinese have, the Communist Party is not a monolith. And I think this is where we, we sometimes uh, lose sight of the fact that they have evolved. I don't think they are communist anymore. I think they are communist, uh, they, they project the communist narrative to build certain constituencies at home and abroad, but they are also efficient capitalist uh, to some others with whom they do business and trade and create global supply chains. They are also very democratic international partners when they sit in the BRICS and in the SCO and in other smaller groupings. Unlike the Americans, they don't talk down to them yet. I suspect they might, but yet they have not, they have been far more accommodative of smaller actors and in, in different regions than the Americans were at the peak of their powers. So I think the Chinese Communist Party is smarter than we give it credit for. My problem with the Chinese fragility does not come from the ability of the Communist Party, but I think the Communist Party has probably lost something valuable when it created, uh, when it allowed Xi Jinping to become the emperor for life. I think in some ways it uh, removed a layer of debate that took place in China within its power structures, 
that brought certain diversity of thought into the Chinese uh, politics, that gave it resilience, that gave it uh, a wider perspective, that gave it a worldview which was uh, not singular. I think by reposing all power and placing all power in the hands of Xi Jinping, the Chinese may have opted for a model that may prove to be more fragile in the long run. I think when one man makes the decisions, that system is likely to be more fragile than when a council of elders are able to debate and disagree. Disagreement has been dispensed with. The Communist Party now does not allow disagreements. Under Xi Jinping, the emperor for life, there is only one way, his way. And I think that is the fragility that the Chinese need to worry about. I think um, if you were, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you a, 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 a small sample of what I'm just saying that I'm, my, my friends in Rwanda, for example, uh, I was talking to them after having written some of the articles that I, had, I have recently. And they told me, you're on the wrong side of the debate, Samir. The Chinese are good folks. This is an American conspiracy. This is a Taiwan conspiracy. This is an American Taiwan conspiracy. They are blaming the Chinese. Your debates are wrong. This is a view from one person in Rwanda. I heard this repeated a few times in different countries in, in the continent as we did a series of webinars uh, there. So I don't really believe that the Chinese have the brand has taken a beating beyond repair. I'm, it is down. It is certainly facing its toughest time. But I don't think it is beyond repair. And I think because they will be on their feet fastest, they will have economic offerings that many will find difficult to resist, especially in the emerging part of the world. In the old world, I think Europe, EU, especially uh, the US and Russia will have to make very difficult and some very, very important geoeconomic and geopolitical choices. Uh, you will have to decide whether enough is enough and we, now we need to decouple or we need to reset the terms of engagement. We need to reset the terms of business. We need to reset the terms of politics. We need to change the way we have allowed ourselves to be used and abused. You have to make many, many difficult decisions. We have to make it as well. I think uh, uh, what India will have to realize very soon is that uh, in Pax Americana, strategic ambiguity, which is something we practice with the greatest finesse, we also called it non-alignment. We have given it different names over different eras. But the ambiguity that the Indians used as a strategic choice may not be available in a Chinese-dominated world. The Chinese are not scared of ambiguity. The, 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 uh, the Americans could be fobbed off. You could, you could keep them at a distance by being ambiguous. The Chinese know you too well. They are oriental as well. In a, in a Chinese-dominated system, India may have to learn how to make choices, something it hasn't done for the last 75 years. So we will have to also rethink uh, our own role in the world as we go ahead. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that uh, I've just received questions also from the audience and they relate very much to what you've uh, just said uh, specifically what would you say are some of the big challenges but I would add also opportunities for India both domestically and of course internationally in terms of attraction of India as a new emerging uh, regional center of power uh, or as a potential partner geopolitically, geoeconomically, if the West is retreating or if the West is becoming weaker. And I can also add to this question that we are already observing some kind of actors reconfiguration. We see that there are new regional formats emerging. Okay, you've mentioned BRICS, you've mentioned uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, these are formats initiated by China, where India is also part of them, is participating actively. There, there is also a very interesting format between the foreign ministers of China, India and Russia. I think it's a very important format specifically to de-escalate because we are observing constantly also skirmishes uh, between China and India that might lead to a regional tension or even a regional conflict which of course is uh, you know is uh, not uh, desired in this region with uh, nuclear powers so what is your take what would be the India's role in this emergent emerging regional centers of power in this reconfiguration of global power in these shifts how maybe you can you can focus on several uh, and make it short because i have more questions for you and we have really limited time okay no so i i'll keep it short uh, you know luckily for india it is at that um, particular moment in its evolution as a country where its international offering and its domestic imperative are the same uh, the India focus for the next few years has to be India. We have to uh, 
remove poverty, we have to provide health care, we have to invest in education, we have to build roads, we have to build cities, we have to build ports, we have to build all of this in a carbon, uh, uh, in a low carbon transition, uh, uh, through a low carbon transition formulation, we have to be green, we have to be competent, we have to be efficient, and we have to create employment. This is the India story. This story it's, is, is a very compelling story for, for uh, external actors as well, and let me tell you why. Uh, India is probably going to be the first $5 trillion economy in the next few years, which would be greener than any other. Our per capita emissions are less than two tons. Uh, as we move to a $5 trillion economy, uh, we are unlikely to move too much beyond that mark. We are probably going to be the least carbon intensive $5 trillion economy ever. We are going to be already, uh, uh, and we've already done it, we are going to be in investing a lot into renewables, a lot, a lot into green technologies, a lot into uh, the sustainable development imperatives, and we will be creating bottom of the pyramid, low cost solutions for each of these. Now, as we build all of this for ourselves, we are creating products and services for the world. We are creating it for 5 billion people who are going to be behind us in the development ladder. These are solutions that can easily be either uh, exported, uh, offered, or, or, trans, or transported to our partners, allies, um, uh, uh, and, and colleagues in the international organization. So I think India is going to be emerging as a development superpower. It is not going to be a political superpower. It is not going to be an economic superpower. It is going to be a large economy built on meeting its development goals. We are going to be a largely low mid-income country with lots of development experiences and solutions to offer to the world. That's going to be the first Indian opportunity. So those who want to invest in responding to climate change, please invest in India's green efforts. I think we are going to offer to the world the largest mitigation project. If you can get Indian per capita emissions at the level that I'm talking about, if you can build up India as while keeping emissions low, we would have responded to our Paris goals. So when you invest in India in the next five to seven to 10 years, you are actually responding to the climate obligations of the world. I think that should be the one uh, frame uh, of looking at how the Indian opportunity exists. The second is we are an exciting digital and technology hub. India is going to be creating non-US tech and non-China tech, billion people plus uh, platforms. There are only uh, uh, two other geographies which have over a billion users: the Fang in China, uh, the in the U.S., and uh, the Bat. Sorry, Bat is a bad word, but unfortunately, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent are called the Bat system in China. You have these two uh, big uh, uh, platforms. One is owned by capitalists; other is owned by communists. We have a public uh, 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 inventory and a public-owned data set which has created an India tech model. Indian platforms, Indian solutions, um, you know, be it payment gateways, be it uh, benefit transfers to those who need it now. We are using it all the time, even as we respond to the pandemic. India is building a bottom of the pyramid and a bottoms up uh, technology uh, architecture that is again relevant to 5 billion, 6 billion people. As a friend of mine says that America and Europe innovated for the top 1 billion. India is building innovation for the next 6 billion. We will be the tech uh, uh, solutions and services providers, not only to Europe and America, as we have done in the past 20 years, but increasingly to the emerging world as they seek many solutions. So technology is a great, attractive Indian proposition. And we are not going to, when Indian technology flows, Indian ideology does not fo uh, follow it. We are not going to be exporting our ideology along with either our money or uh, our technology, unlike the Communist Party of China. And, and finally, I think India has to defend the idea uh, and uh, navigate the plural society it has through these times of tribalism, nationalism, populism. I think the big political debate, the, put, uh, the loud political debates in India symbolize the existence of this strong public sphere. Um, the current response to the pandemic confirms to me that irrespective of the social media tweets or the Facebook posts, uh, the states and the center are working together. We see far greater political coherence in real as we respond to the crisis, then we see on social media through their uh, spokespeople. So I, I truly believe that if we can do this, if we can become a development superpower, if we can grow our technology offerings for the world, if we can become this $5 trillion economy and a $10 trillion economy thereafter, um, by retaining our plural and democratic uh, characteristic, we can give the world an alternative. The world has only seen authoritarian countries emerge. 
a democratic plural society has not grown uh, in the uh, post-war uh, period. We will be the first large post-war plural democratic society to emerge. That itself would strengthen the idea of a liberal order. It may not be the Western style liberal order. It may be more Eastern in ethic, but it would be a liberal order nonetheless, very different from the communist offering. So uh, I, I know the, many of these are optimistic, but um, uh, these are times when you need optimism. You need to believe in a target to chase. And this is something that mm -hmm. I believe is uh, what we should be chasing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what you've described and outlined the strategies for India, and I really wish uh, some of these uh, strategies to take place and uh, to be fulfilled, because I see a great potential also for the bilateral relations between Europe and India, between the European Union, the institutions, but also between the European uh, Union member states and India, not only based on common or shared values or norms uh, of uh, international behavior, but also, you know, um, because of democratic order, because of understanding of market economy and so on and so forth. But these outlined strategies would require another phase of globalization. And you coined mm -hmm. the term, you coined the term of gated globalization. And uh, let's be honest, uh, even prior to COVID-19, we were already in a cycle of deglobalization. We had a stagnation of global trade already taking place since uh, 2012, 2013, as a result of the uh, global financial crisis. Uh, we had a economic uh, slowdown. We had recession trends already prior to uh, COVID-19. Uh, so my question to you is, do you think that we are going to face another 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 uh, cycle of uh, globalization following the post-COVID-19 uh, recession or depression period or will it be will it be a kind of a deglobalization um, centered around different uh, powers uh, power centers uh, in each one of them would uh, basically set their own rules of the game uh, how do you how do you expect that this is going to 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 look like? Because obviously the chimerica moment is over. You know, the, entag the entanglement between China and America for the last uh, decades is now coming to its end. Uh, we are observing a systemic decoupling that has been already taking place once again prior to the COVID-19. So the, the virus outbreak is an accelerated accelerator of processes, uh, systemic processes that were already taking place. And uh, for all these uh, grand strategies to take place, uh, there's, there will be uh, you know, a certain set of, uh, of uh, supply chains needed. So how do you see this? How is going to this reconfiguration of global supply chains? Uh, is going to take place and um, obviously there will be a role for India, there will be a role for the European Union. We are already observing increasing presence by India in other continents uh, aside from South Asia and aside from Asia actually, right? How, how all of this come together? No, I, you, you, I think that's a, that's a whole book there. It's a whole book there on the new shape of the global order. Let me try and just share a few thoughts on that. The first, of course, is that you're right. Uh, for the first time uh, in the recent past, we saw the loud street, uh, the Wall Street, uh, and the global elites uh, all reach a conclusion that globalization in its current form was not um, necessarily something that they aspired for. Everyone had some degree of uh, despondency with the current format of globalization. So you had people on the street who believed were not that they were left out of the, the benefits of globalization. There were countries who believed that they were discriminated against because of globalization. There were uh, elites who believed that they were not necessarily uh, benefiting from investing into globalization. And I think uh, uh, the COVID or uh, the pandemic is going to only uh, catalyze this sentiment further. I think what we see emerging now will be um, gated globalization. And that's the term I have put. I don't believe that the genie can be put back into the bottle. I think we are a largely interdependent world. We are now going to use filters and we are going to use political filters 
to restrict certain kinds of flows and catalyze other kind of flows. We are going to enhance engagement with certain geographies where there is political trust and we are trying, we are going to divest ourselves of certain other geographies where there is no trust. It is unlikely, as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, if I was a policymaker in Europe, to allow my entire pharmaceutical and medical futures to be uh, dependent on mainland China in the future. I don't think any European, uh, Western European leader is going to visualize a future like that. They're either going to build stocks or they're going to diversify their options or they're going to invest in other uh, partners as well. So I think globalization as we knew it, which was um, uh, what I call the, the hippie globalization from West Coast of the US, you know, everyone believed in this, uh, you know, uh, 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 techno optimism, the world would be nicer, we are all connected, global village. I think that period is over. We have realized that we all live in our own villages, in our own context, and we have our own insecurities and we have our, our own needs. And when push comes to shove, the other village is not going to send us his ventilators. We have realized that. In a yeah. very, very cruel fashion, we have realized that the ventilator has the name of the destination where it is going to. So we will have to rethink some of the formats of globalization. Interdependence is not going to end. We are going to, in fact, catalyze certain pipelines and we are going to st stop the flow in certain other pipelines. That's the new format of gated globalization, that there will be someone at the gate deciding what is the engagement, the terms of engagement, the trust of engagement, and of course, the benefits of engagement. The whole idea of casual, happy globalization that dominated 25, 30 years of my life that I was growing up in is now possibly behind us. Globalization 5.0 is probably going to be very different. The fifth edition of globalization may well see um, a filtered globalization or polarized globalization or partial globalization or gated globalization, as I've called it in my recent paper. And I don't see any reason that in this new format of globalization, EU and India should not be one of the two poles that define the new uh, terms uh, of trade, engagement, finance and, and, and benefits. And I certainly truly believe that if the EU has to remain a relevant political order, union, uh, India has to help in defending it. Europe, ne EU needs India if EU is to be solvent. India needs the EU if India is to be solvent. I think we have to first realize that beyond the values and beyond the trade, beyond the FTA and beyond the maritime exercises, we need each other in a, on an existential basis. If we are not with the EU, Brussels and Beijing will have a broadband connection. You know, we need to we need to be in the EU to give EU an option. And EU needs to be in India to give India that option, that political space to maneuver. I think we are each other's political space to maneuver. It is high time we recognize that we are uh, dependent on each other for existential reasons. Forget the high brow stuff around values and uh, global trade and uh, uh, climate change. We need to survive and hence we need to be together. I think that's the first uh, important driver of our relationship going ahead. The second, luckily, even as we work together to survive, there are certain uh, uh, you know, areas that come up where we are ideal partners. Now, if India was to embrace this green transition as its recovery model, if the green stimulus was to become the Indian future, this fits in with the European uh, uh, declarations. Of, of, of wanting to invest in zero emission and green transitions. Now, here you have the world's largest mitigation project called India. And here you have the world's largest market that wants to go green. Why should there not be a direct and strong and robust economic and trade relationship to make this happen? Why is it that the long-term savings in pension and insurance funds in Europe are not deployed to help India uh, navigate this? So uh, I think this common areas are quite apparent, whether it is green, whether it is a non-US, non-China technology option, whether it is the middle power-based normative frameworks that should manage the world of the future, uh, whether it is not having to choose between the devil in DC and the emperor in Beijing. I think we need to work together to create a sensible multilateral system that is being perverted by the two largest powers today. India and EU also need to work together to balance uh, a, a, a world which is uh, current, currently quite whimsical. So I think that's the second area. 
the future of multilateralism will depend on how closely we can partner together the middle powers be it eu be it india be it japan be it uh, australia be it uh, some other countries as well so i think we also have to form the undergirding of the new global governance architecture that will likely emerge in the future so be it technology be it climate change be it multilateralism and of course uh, be it uh, uh, our uh, age old civilizational links uh, there is a lot going for our relationship we also suffer we also face similar challenges uh, middle east is important for both of us we have millions of people in the middle east you have millions of people from the middle east we have a people's bridge connecting uh, india to eu through the middle east what happens in the middle east affects both of us there are geographies where we need to work together there are issues around terrorism there are issues around uh, extremism there are issues around uh, cyber crime there are issues around uh, hate speech and 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 violence um, uh, uh, plethora of challenges which we uh, will both have to respond to can we form the sensible part can we be the adults in the international arrangement that comes up can we provide the the gravity and the and the maturity to create new solutions for the future and i think we are, we have a normative partnership that lies ahead of us if we are able to grab it we should, we can be the norms partners of the world for the future uh, and there are many 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 more areas but i'm saying this is a book to be written um, but i i'm not going to do that here right now Maybe we can start writing this book for the next decade of European Union India strategic partnership that has has been in the in the making but never realized in its potential in its full scope uh, at least yet but it's in it's right. certainly it's uh, making and it's very interesting because more questions are flooding so I will uh, I will just. Uh, ask you these questions from the audience, from the chat room, mm -hmm. and you can decide uh, which one or several of them you would like to pick uh, because we are already approaching uh, the 60 minutes. Uh, it's up to you. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I would gladly give you more space if you have time to ask uh, to, to answer the question. So interestingly, we have one question and we haven't really touched upon this uh, on finances, financial monetary system. Uh, how do you see China's, uh, China's, uh, China's part in this? Because it's still very much a US dominant uh, system. Mm -hmm. We have a global reserve currency that is the US dollar. I mean, if we take the uh, the traded uh, yuan, it's uh, just four, three, four percent. It's really um, insignificant, and we don't have an alternative currency as a reserve currency. So we still have this uh, in place. So how do you think that this is going to affect the transition of the global system? Like you've put, like you've put it, we are observing the end of the unipolarity moment and uh, are in the middle of transition but still financial and uh, monetary systems are very much dominated by the united states and by the oil dollar system basically this was uh, actually the reason why the last time 10 years ago after the global financial crisis uh, there was no not uh, much bigger evil happening, meaning the collapse of the whole system, right? Because of the currency swaps and the swap lines between the Federal Reserve and the uh, European Central Bank. So how do you see um, how do you see this uh, specifically? This was one question. Then we have a question on 5G and we haven't uh, touched upon these developments uh, either. Currently, I know that uh, there is a debate going on in India on 5G. Mm -hmm. Uh, specifically at the level of strategists and the level of uh, experts. And right now we are also, due to COVID-19, observing a debate on the 5G um, issue in uh, the key member states, uh, such as uh, Germany, UK, France. Prior to COVID-19, this was more or less uh, an issue that uh, was not really uh, politicized. Uh, but uh, I expect that uh, it will be politicized now. So there is a question on 5G, and then there is a question on India's reliance. Does reliance now become India's only fank? Is the question. And then we have a question which I think is very, very interesting, and we haven't touched upon this uh, either because of lack of time. That is the question of uh, manufacturing hubs. So if India never became a manufacturing hub, 
during the height of globalization, what's your view on the narrative that global supply chains move to India? And I think that this is also very relevant for Europe because Europe reconfigured supply chains and probably now there will be a question of of uh, supply, moving supply chains, moving manufacturing back to Europe. And Japan had already opened this debate. United States, of course, with the president who is uh, uh, pushing for uh, America first uh, narrative, of course, uh, the expectation is that uh, manufacturing, even though that the financial, the financial and the services sector is, uh, of course, much much more important for the u.s economy uh, the the question about manufacturing will be re-emerging so just it's yep. a it's a big 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 uh, <laughs> pot of new questions i mean it's up to you to decide which uh question so let, like. uh, let me try and answer all of them in two minutes each i'll give fast replies i think on the financing uh, on the monetary system uh, the chinese have benefited from a US dominated monetary system. The Chinese have created the equivalent of the World Bank. So they give big loans from AIIB and from the NDB and through their other uh, export import banks. They give it to countries who are unable to pay them. And then the American led monetary system comes and bails those countries out. So the Chinese give the loans and the American monetary system, the IMF, comes and bails those countries out. China has, has is winning both ways. They, they, um, uh, buy into the sovereignty of the country they lend into and the solvency of the country is managed by american dollars so uh, uh, every taxpayer in europe and america is underwriting chinese debt diplomacy chinese debt diplomacy is based on imf bailing out the countries they loot and i think you must understand why would they want a different monetary system at this time they are expanding at your cost so this monetary system works well for china now they are of course worried about the weaponization of the dollar and please track this pace in the next five years this will look very different the four percent share of yuan in the global currency market is likely to increase dramatically the chinese are increasingly going to divest themselves of the treasury bonds they are going to move away from uh, us linked uh, trade and activities and going to create an alternative i think uh, the next stage of china's um, expansion economic expansion will be through its um, uh, uh, strategy around its currency. And I think this is something we must watch post the pandemic. I think that time has come. They have benefited from the uh, American-led system. Now they believe they can build their own. And this is that probably possibly the pandemic is the time when Chinese change gears on the monetary system. On the 5G debate, it's a very important debate. 5G is not a hardware or a software or a router or a technology solution. 5G is what will connect our society. Machines will talk to machines. Machines will decide what people eat, people's preferences, how they date, how they travel, how they uh, sleep, how they fly, how they decide to pick a certain book to read. Uh, in a highly mediated world, the medium is the message. 5G is the message. Do you want the message always to be written in Beijing? That's the choice all of us have to make. McLuhan said medium is the message. Guess what? Uh, Xi Jinping is giving you the message. It's called 5G. Decide whether that's the only message you want to receive or do you want a, uh, a system where multiple messages can thrive. And I think 5G has to be looked at in that way. It is going to code human activity, human endeavor, human choice, human, human interaction forever. 5G, 6G and thereafter, we are going to be in a very new space. All of us must be careful. It is not good enough to say, don't take from China. It is equally important to create an alternative. Have we, as a liberal system, invested enough in building a 5G alternative. Uh, I believe uh, we have made some progress, but I also believe that we have underinvested in creating a democratic 5G proposition. It's time to do that. May this pandemic wake us up to the challenge of uh, news manipulation, uh, 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 truth manipulation and information manipulation at a scale that we cannot even imagine. Uh, in our very simple minds, once predictive technology and autonomous systems riding on 5G and 6G networks decide to tell us what the world looks like. I think we need to be very careful about this. Uh, on the manufacturing hubs, um, I tend to disagree. I think the Indian manufacturing story has been, uh, it, 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 it has been patchy. Now, we may not have been able to create 
the low cost mass manufacturing export units that china was able to simply because it could ask villages to vacate a piece of land it could pass legislation that would connect the uh, uh, manufacturing site with the port it would run special trains and create industrial policies catered to its uh, industrial projects india being a democracy was not able to do that we had uh, uh, civil right groups and civil society groups and political parties and and a media that would oppose anything that would seem like government encroachment that did not allow us to build these huge low cost manufacturing facilities but we did well in the higher end manufacturing we are a very sophisticated uh, petroleum and petrochemical industry we are one of the world's largest exporters of refined products uh, someone was telling me every 10th or 12th car is basically using indian gasoline uh, every few aircrafts are flying on only on indian aviation fuel most of your plastics and polymers and sophisticated petrochemical outcomes come from indian uh, petrochemical plants our auto sector our auto component sector works with the mercedes and the european car factories so i think our story is is not uh, is not a one gear story we may not be uh, we may not have performed well in creating mass manufacturing complexes but we have certainly done well in many sectors and we punch above our weight in those particular sectors be it pharmaceuticals be it technology sectors now be it uh, uh, oil and gas and petrochemicals be it certain complex engineering and uh, industrial units we do well in those spheres and i think um, in the fourth industrial revolution many of our skills that we have are directly applicable so many much of what we have built ourselves as a country for um uh, can be accelerated if we are able to invest in human capital invest in education and health and we can actually build uh, uh, the nerve center the 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 products hub and the services hub the platform hub for the free world uh, out of india uh, and uh, in that sense while we may not immediately benefit from the com uh, companies which are leaving china and they may still prefer to go to vietnam and bangladesh and and other alternatives i think over the over the next 5 to 6 years if india gets some of its policies right it is but natural for a market of our size to be able to attract uh, very large uh, uh, future industries into our geography and i think uh, we should be working on the medium to long term play we should not be making mistakes by trying to pluck uh, one or two companies who are leaving china at this moment and then disappoint them we should be ready to host them to make sure they thrive and succeed in our geography before we um, hoard them into our country i think this government is acutely aware of this uh, the, the current dispensation and hopefully uh, we will see in the next few months a series of measures that make um, certain kind of manufacturing attractive in india i suspect the future of mobile phone manufacturing may well be an indian story as well uh, mm -hmm. did i miss anything okay. uh, um, I, i think i'll try to cover all of it think that we've covered uh, more or less the questions and i think that we've uh, you i mean we've stayed online for 17 minutes uh, without any disruptions uh, internet connection was great between europe and india and i'm so glad to have had this opportunity to talk with you in a digital way hopefully you will be a guest uh a public speaker once again in vienna and will be coming to europe once again very soon once the covid-19 pandemic is over and uh, i'm really really thankful for your open transparent way of uh, dealing with all of these issues so this this is uh, these are very complex uh, complex topics and i um wish you and your team uh, in india much success stay all safe and sound thank you very thank much you. samir Thank you Belinda and please stay safe. Thank you.